You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Visla has made today's show possible. And in an act of reciprocity, I'd encourage you to consider Visla for any of your holiday textile gifting. From swimsuits to outerwear, Visla can style out your entire family. Of course, you could check it all out on Visla.com, but I would suggest going into your local surf shop to touch and feel it all there. Support local. Uh, I'm a fan of Visla's flannels, but they also have t-shirts that are made from recycled cotton and plastic bottles. They have hats, beanies, backpacks, swim fins, a lot of add-ons for anybody in your family who you need to gift for. If you don't have access to Visla through a local retailer, they're actually including a 5-liter dry bag with any purchase of $100 or more while supplies last in the U.S. on Visla.com. The promo code to get that is FREE5. It's the number 5, so FREE and the number 5. And of course, Visla.com is also where you can grab Nat Young's new book, Church of the Open Sky, as he and I discussed in episode 296 of this show. So thanks to Visla for the support. On to today's show. Welcome to the 300th episode of Surf Splendor. We, between Spit and The Grit, I think we're probably much closer to 500 podcast episodes produced, but this is officially number 300 of Surf Splendor, which of course is crazy. Started in July of 2013, and there's really no better way to commemorate this occasion than by featuring Dick Metz as our illustrious guest. It's hard to even imagine what surfing would be today without Dick Metz, and he's a name that you really don't hear in surf media that often, but saying that surfing would be entirely different without him is not hyperbole at all. It's true for a number of reasons, but perhaps most acutely because when Dick returned from a three-year odyssey around the world in 1961, he regaled his good friend Bruce Brown with photos and stories of waves. He gifted Bruce contacts like John Whitmore in South Africa, all of which became the blueprint for Bruce Brown's film, The Endless Summer. So Dick, additionally, Dick was the very first employee of Clark Foam. He opened the very first surf shop in the world. That is the first shop that sold surfboards specifically. And it was there that he'd accept trade-ins. And he began to amass a collection of surfboards, which would later become highly prized cultural relics and eventually become the impetus for the founding of the Surfing Heritage and Culture Center with his partner, Spencer Crowell. So again, Dick's influence on surfing is beyond measure. 
Could you imagine what surfing would or wouldn't be without that flashpoint of the endless summer that brought it to the world and probably to you and I indirectly, if not absolutely directly? So today's conversation will be part one of three, and it really could be an ongoing series indefinitely because Dick has more to say and more surf experience than any voice that you've previously heard on this podcast. And, bizarrely, at the age of 90, he also has more energy than any previous guest. So we recorded uh, these three parts in three different days over the course of a couple of months. And in this first part, Dick provides a first-hand history of surfboard foam manufacturing alongside his close friends Hobie Alter and Gordon Clark. He details the genesis of surfing in Laguna Beach. He talks about his friendships with child actress Shirley Temple, and then later in life with Duke Kahanamoku. He talks about what inspired his three-year surf odyssey and how he eventually got into the surf business after he got home from that. So parts two and three will be published on the next two Wednesdays, and both of those conversations are much more focused on that three-year journey from Tahiti through Africa, Spain, lots of other places. Um, at a very, very different time to travel, a much more kind of difficult time to travel. So really insane stories. Anyway, strap in. Without further ado, here's part one of my conversation with the venerable Dick Metz. You are in for a ride. For I look around me And it seems you found Days keep turning into night As the days keep turning into night And even breathing feels alright If I'm forced into it, I then actually get something out of it Yeah, yeah. Well, sometimes you got some jerk next to you and it's not right. fun But, you know, it was always when I used to fly back and forth from Honolulu when I lived there once a month here, so I was back and forth a lot. So you'd always try and in those days they didn't assign you seats. So you'd kind of walk in and pick out people that you wanted. The best looking woman the, on the flight. Yeah, of course, that was your first target. But if that wasn't happening, then you'd try and get next to a guy that looked like had some, you know, he had some personality and some interest because you funny. wanted to have that that communication. So you got five hours. You're, you know, you didn't have the phones. You didn't have the well, when I look at photos like of the endless summer or that era, people were also dressed in a suit and tie to travel. Well, that was way more formal then. Yeah. But don't be misled by that. And I should. Are we on? We're now? live. Oh, okay. Well, I'll, I'll give you a proper introduction in post production. Okay. So well, we could just chat. Well, I was just going to say uh, when endless summer came about, when, when I came home, and maybe a year, I'm out of sync with all this. That's okay. We'll come back. Start at the beginning. But. Um, Surfing, see, in the early years when I grew up, surfers were like hell's angels. The public at large really frowned on them. See, and there again, you're going back to your original thing. In the 30s, I grew up in the 30s, in the Depression. And even though during the Depression in Laguna, my mom was a school teacher at Laguna High School, my dad had a little restaurant downtown right on the lawn where the uh, Laguna Lifeguard is now. Those used to be buildings along there. 
And my dad had a restaurant called The Broiler, and that's where I grew up, right on the beach in front of that lifeguard tower. <clears throat> but my point is, in that time frame, uh, a guy named, I'll think of his name in a minute, he drove the, the lumber truck from the lumber yard, hauling lumber around, you know, a big, heavy job. He wore a coat and tie. Wow. I, I mean, people dressed up then to go to the beach. I mean, you'll see them in a hat and a coat and a tie, and, a, and they had to wear a vest. And if you were real prosperous, you would have a, a watch in one side of the vest with a chain going across it in the other pocket, and you had that little gold chain across it so you didn't button your coat. So people would see that and say, he's prosperous, he's wow. doing okay. So a total, so that gradually drifted away. But surfers, because of what they were doing, didn't dress up. And so they were always thought of and looked upon. I'm talking about in the 30s, the early before the war. Um, it was way more formal. Yeah. And so we're in T-shirts, and there were hardly T-shirts then. You didn't have, nobody made trunks then. We cut off Levi's. I surfed and cut off Levi's. There's a, there's a picture out there right now of me and cut off Levi's surfing. But that's what we had. But that wasn't the norm. And so the public at large would look askance at, the kids were surfing, if they had a surfboard in the car, that was like a Hell's Angel jacket or something. Right. And parents certainly wouldn't let uh, their daughters go out with a surfer, right. especially if he had a van. <laughs> and that was really a no-no, and I always had vans. So, you know, you That's had... funny. It was just you, a different social culture. Well, you know, when you look back at, like, Renaissance art, and you can tell the prosperous person depicted in the painting because they're overweight yeah, and they're and they're pale uh -huh. and that meant that you didn't have to be a laborer out in the sun yeah, in working the sun. hard you had plenty of food to eat and i'm wondering if that's where we're at now where if you're wearing cargo shorts and sandals on a tuesday at 2 p.m it means you're the ceo of a tech company you know what i mean <laughs> well, like yeah. mark cube that's the way mark cuban, cuban dresses. dresses and um it just means that like oh no i have enough affluence and wealth that i can be casual there's also of course the person with no money who dresses that way. You almost can't distinguish the difference nowadays, yeah. but the most affluent aren't wearing the suit and tie anymore because that would be an indicator that you're actually middle management. Well, they want to kind of blend in, I think. Yeah, a lot true. Of and of course, the shaving thing and the beard thing and the tattoos and yeah. all, all of that, there was none of that. I know. It's so funny. it's, it's so, really a radical change. I don't know anybody who grew up in Laguna in that time. Was it an affluent community even then? Well... I don't look at it as affluent. My it was a little bitty town, and my parents were well known and lived there and were active in in all the different social things. And the doctor Vincent Carroll was the only doctor in town, and he was a good friend of the family. And in my mind, he didn't make or live any differently than we did. Uh, I mean, he had an old crummy Plymouth, as I remember. Uh, he'd come to the house and you get the measles or the chicken pox or something. But it seemed to me, when I look back on that, and at the time, everybody was the same. We didn't have extremely poor, but yet you would, my mom would cook, you know, you cooked at home then. You didn't yeah. go to restaurants. That was too expensive. Despite I mean, the fact that your dad owned dad a restaurant. Dad had one. Yeah. But what, what happened in Laguna 
Laguna was unique because there's no freeways. And of course, to go from LA to San Diego, you came right down the coast highway and cars didn't go like they do now. And there was not a stop sign in Laguna, not a, on weekends and a summertime, they'd roll out a sign that said stop for pedestrians, but there was no lights. There was no permanent stop signs. You could just buzz right through. So trucks and Greyhound buses and everything were coming through town. But what happened with Laguna, and this started with La Jolla too, I think, that the movie industry, because Laguna was always artsy. Uh, and it, because of the topography, artists came to Laguna and were on vacant lots. And as a kid, I, we were always playing in vacant lots because there were plenty of vacant lots. And heading to the beach, they would be sitting there on an easel looking down on the main beach by Victoria, uh, different coves and painting in different directions. And that's when the Festival of Art started, was in the mid-30s. I was in the first living picture as a kid. No way. And it was a city project. Everybody in town was in it, uh, one way or another. You know, they would work in it, volunteers, because it was just for three days. It was just Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. But the movie people, and this is where that started, is that Bing, Hope, Bing Crosby and Bob Hope started the Del Mar racetrack. And... And then movie stars weren't what they are now. They were making more money, uh, but they were regular people. And they would drive, so they would work on the Warner Brothers or MGM lots uh, on the weekdays. And on Friday afternoon, they'd close early. So Friday afternoon, they would get in their cars on the lots, drive to Laguna, because that was about an hour's drive or so, on that much traffic. And they'd spend uh, Friday night in Laguna, and they'd get up the next morning and drive to Del Mar to the races for Saturday and Sunday. Sunday afternoon, after the last race, they'd drive back to Laguna. Going all the way to Hollywood is too far. So they'd drive to Laguna and spend Sunday night there, and then they'd get up reasonably early uh, Monday morning and drive to their lots. Well, what happened is the Bing Crosbys and the Bob Hopes would go to the races, but a lot of them didn't care about the races. So a lot of them would come to Laguna and just stay in Laguna for the weekend uh, because of its artsy. And then that's where it got to be a gay community. Is so many of the, the artists that built the sets and did the backdrops for the movies because they were all they weren't going off in exotic places they were doing it all in lots then so they would come to Laguna they didn't care about the horse races and they helped do the festival of arts and started that whole kind of art culture that Laguna had front with a few artists and then the more that came it just got bigger and bigger and that's how Laguna kind of grew into the art colony that it is still today. Fascinating. So yeah, I did not know that history. Well, it's amazing. And my dad had originally he had a dining car. It was an old railroad car called the Laguna Diner. So when I was born, that's what my dad had, and that was torn down and moved. It didn't wasn't torn down. They moved it uh, in '34, and the guy that owned the property lived in L.A. I don't know who he was, and he built my dad a new restaurant, and that was called The Broiler, and it was right on the Coast Highway, fronting the Coast Highway, and then the back of it, where the bar and the dancing was, was on the boardwalk, so you could enter from the beach side or the uh, Coast Highway side, awesome. and the bar was there, and my dad was an outgoing, fun guy, and the bartender, and owned it, and, and so the, the movie people, not just movie stars, but uh, I should remember Shirley Temple. I played with her. She's exactly my age. 
Wow. We were like a month apart in birthdays, wow. and her folks and my folks got to be good friends. And Shirley Temple and I'd go out in the sand and be building mud castles and just playing on the beach. Amazing. I mean, almost every weekend. She was like my best pal. That's hilarious. In, in the summertime. But that's the way it was. And Victor Mature, uh, Betty Davis, they all had houses in Laguna and lived there. And they didn't go to the races. There's some that were interested and some weren't. So that's where Laguna kind of gathered that culture and that wealthy. But it, it didn't seem wealthy. Your original question was... Uh, my dad built a house on El Camino del Mar. I go by it all the time for six thousand dollars. Wow! <laughs> and you know, had a, it was a three-bedroom house. Uh, my mom, but like say now, now a three million dollar property. Yeah, would, three million dollars yeah, now. But yeah. he paid six thousand dollars for yeah. it to build it. We, I mean, he had a contractor and an architect, and and they built it. Uh, you know, lots were five hundred bucks. Right. Uh, so. Those people that came there early bought that. And of course, I look back on myself. If I had never worked a day in any of the jobs that I've had with Hobies or here or wherever it was, and just kept two of the properties that I owned, I'd be wealthier today than I would be if I, which I did work, and even save some money. I mean, the price has just gone crazy. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah. Need a time machine. <laughs> um, I would love to hear what your first exposure to surfing was because I mean, so many people use um, the endless summer as being like a flashpoint, you know, but you were a predecessor to that and influential in that, I would even say. So, what was your first exposure? Well, what happened is going to school in Laguna um, and my dad having that restaurant during the Depression. So, things were hard. I mean, we didn't have money in my mind to go buy stuff. My folks told me right away when I was. I don't know, seven, eight, nine years old, uh, you, you know, you've got to work. I mean, you brought, you, you grew up in a different era and everybody was working. That was just part of the thing. So in those days, when I was seven, eight, LA Times had an afternoon edition besides the morning edition. And the truck would come down the coast highway and throw off a couple of bundles of newspapers. And I sold LA Time afternoon edition on the corner in front of my dad's restaurant. They were a nickel and I got a penny. I mean, that's what I earned from selling a newspaper. Wow. So, you know, for a whole day, you might make 15 cents, 20 right. cents. And my mom, and Dad used to always tell me, see, there was no stores in Laguna then that had clothes. And Levi's, a pair of Levi's like I have on right now, Levi Strauss, cost $2.50. And, and you had to go to Santa Ana to get them. So before school would start, during the summer this is, because during school I was going to school, of course. But uh, I, we, my mom would take me to Santa Ana and I'd save $2.50 to buy a new pair of Levi's. And that was a summer project that I had to do every the, summer. The one pair basically the, would last you a year? Yeah, last me a year. That's a lot of newspaper sales. And, yeah, but, <laughs> a penny a pop. but that's the way it was. And everybody was working. And I had a paper route. The Laguna newspaper called the South Coast News only came on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So I delivered that on Tuesdays and Thursdays, even during school time. But I didn't sell down the broiler. And I remember one time, it was a rainy day, not raining hard, and it wasn't cold. It was in the summer, and uh, I was standing. We were always barefoot. I went to school barefoot. You could go to school barefoot in a pair of Levi's and a t-shirt or a sweatshirt, 
I had a hooded sweatshirt. I have pictures of me in the old school pictures of sweatshirts and stuff. But anyway, a guy stopped me. I was selling it. Times, you know, I'd be out there in front in the rain, and he said, well, Aren't you Carl Metz's son? And I said, Yeah. And he said, uh, Well, what are you doing out here in the rain selling newspapers? I said, I got to earn money from a pair of Levi's by school time. And he just kind of shook his head, but he knew my dad, and he was kind of amazed that here I was barefooted in the rain, and getting a penny for selling, you know, a few, yeah. a few papers. Good. But I mean, that is reflective of that depression era mentality sure, which is pair. you had to so during that time getting back to your original question uh two guys named hez mcclellan you might have heard of them and peanuts larson yep. well they were bosom buddies they grew up together they were <clears throat> hez was 10 years older than i was peanuts was uh 12 years older than i was so when i was 10 they were 20 and 22 when I was, you know, yeah. whatever. And so they started surfing, uh, not surfing so much. They started living on the ocean. We used to have a pier in Laguna, a wooden pier, and we had a big hurricane in 1937, and the pier went down. It had gone, uh, before that, it had started to kind of fall apart because it was kind of wood. And I can remember so well, they had a, a gate closed on it and uh, no entrance and so forth. Those kids would crawl over the gate, but some of the planks were out of the pier and you'd have to step over those and look down into the water. So as a kid, that was kind of scary. Mm -hmm. We'd go out there. See, they used to have a gambling boats off three oh, miles okay. offshore. Got it. And so people could go out on the pier, get on a shore boat, would pick you up at the pier, the end of the pier, and take you out on the gambling boats or three miles offshore. And the other guys were fishing too. But <clears throat> Hevs and Peanuts and other guys, Bus McKnight, Rollo Beck, I can remember them all like the yesterday, were all of that same era. And they, when the pier started to go down, the lumber washed up or they would take it on big planks and they built without any city okays, just built right on the beach below um uh las brisas you yep. know where that is now that, yep. <clears throat> that used to be what was the real name of, of victor uh victor hugo's oh okay. so, so originally it was victor hugo's now it's las brisas anyway right below that the pier went right out so there's a lookout tower yep. right there okay well that was the entrance to the pier so you'd walk right from that little lookout thing down some steps and go out on the pier. So when it went down, all that wood washed up on the beaches below, and <clears throat> they built uh, a shack on the beach uh, that they housed their dories in. The, the guys had dories. I don't know where they got the money for the dories or who built them. They just had them. And because I was on the beach and running around there all the time, they knew my dad's restaurant. They would go fishing and abalone diving, lobster diving, and then they'd bring it to my dad. It was a barter thing. They'd give my dad five abalones and a couple of lobsters, and he'd mark it down on a little cheat sheet he had, and that meant they got hamburgers for the next however many hamburgers they got. Sure. Hamburger was 10 cents then. <laughs> so that was the, the money. So I knew them, they knew me, and my dad one day said to Hevs and Peanuts, because they were in the bar and hanging out at the restaurant all the time trying to sell him stuff, and my dad said, I'll give you guys a hamburger and a beer at the end of the day if you watch my kid. 
by then I'm running around on the beach and there was no kidnappings. There was none right. of that kind of stuff. Right. But, you know, as a kid at six, seven years old, you'd run around the beach in the summertime. And my dad was, he see, originally he would put me out in a playpen and he would be cooking uh, and he could look out the window and, and see me as a little, you know, as a three-year-old, four-year-old. Well, once I got moving around, yeah. then I'd hide and be around behind the boardwalk and he couldn't see me. And he was afraid I'd get in the water and drown or something. So he started giving Hev's and, and Peanuts a hamburger and a beer at the end of the day. So they would just take me. They didn't give a rat's ass about me, but I was their meal ticket. And they would put me in the dory and they'd go fishing and diving and I'd just sit there and look at them and they'd get me to hold a line or whatever it was and that's where it all started now they had one surfboard between them peanuts made it right in front of my dad's restaurant by the lifeguard tower a solid redwood it's here in the museum is it really yeah I've had it the whole time holy cow solid redwood weighed 109 pounds and they would surf on that in those days they no fins and <clears throat> when the pier went down that was called bird rock the rock that's sticking out from laguna where the pier went right over that and so on a west or northwest swell it would hit that rock and you could surf toward the hotel laguna or toward the lifeguard station but it wasn't very good uh and it didn't happen very often so they had an old model a uh 30 three or 34 model a with a rumble seat in the back and so they'd put that board in the back of the rumble seat sticking up and put me in the back with the rum in the rumble seat next to the board and the two of them would be in the uh, front of the car and they'd drive to doheny and they'd go to san onofre and they'd just take me with them so uh, you know i just was <laughs> a little kid going with them were there any other surfers in the lineup I don't remember Laguna in those days. There was Bus McKnight, another guy who was in their class, great big guy, played football. Um, he had a board. And so there was a couple of boards in Laguna, but there was really only three surf spots. It was Doheny um, and San Onofre and Palos Verdes Cove. Oh. And all the Palos Verdes guys heard about San Onofre. See, there was no telephones in there's no i mean there were telephones but there were on a public line and you had to crank the thing up yeah. and and it cost money and nobody had the money so you didn't call up a guy and say what's the surf doing no. you know you, you had to get in the car but nobody had money for gas yep. so there wasn't much going on then and there was a few guys that worked and earned a little bit of money and they could drive from laguna down to San Onofre, and there was other guys at San Onofre. There was a group of guys that hung out there. But yeah, getting to Palos Verdes is just a bridge too far. Oh I mean, yeah, it's, it was way yeah. too far. Not knowing what the swell is doing and all that sort of but stuff. But on the weekends in the summertime, then some of those Palos Verdes guys would come down to San Onofre. San Onofre was the place to go. But in the summertime, you know there's always going to be waves there. It's a safe bet. Right. Yeah. It was a good bet. Yeah. And guys from La Jolla would come up too. Yeah. So that's where there was what I always called a meeting of the tribes because I looked at it <clears throat> as a La Jolla tribe, the Laguna, and there wasn't anybody in Dana Point, but I always include Dana Point because that came in later on. And there wasn't anybody in Newport uh, surfing that I remember. And Huntington Beach was non-existent. I mean, it was there, but we didn't have the boards you could surf Huntington Beach. You know, the big heavy redwood with no fin, where are you, you going to surf? It out. 
And so there wasn't any of that going on. But <clears throat> they'd come down the coast. And so Easter week, and as I got, as I got older, in the later 30s, 38 and 39 and 40 before the war, then there was more, and I was older, and so it was a gradual thing. I'm sure up until the war started, there wasn't 100 surfers in California. Wow. And if there, you know, if you saw a guy with a board on his car, yeah. you know, you'd fall out waving at him. You, know, yeah. you might not know his name, but you recognize his board or his car. And guys would share their board. We had no wetsuits. And so there'd be three or four guys going to San Onofre with one surfboard. And you'd go in for 20, 30 minutes, and they'd come out, and there'd be a fire going. The other guys that didn't own the board, the, the way the deal was, you've got to get the fire going and keep it going. I surf first, and I come in when I'm ready, and then you can go out on my board at my discretion as long as the fire is up and, and uh, things are working. So, so amazing. That's the way it was. And we'd go to San Onofre, and <clears throat> all there where the it was no marine base then uh, that didn't come until the war started. Right. So that was a big bean field right in back of San Onofre, and you, we slept there and camped there all the time. Wow. So uh, we would go to San Onofre for three or four days, and uh, we'd go up diving for abs, get lobsters. We'd go up in the bean field. And there were lima beans, and we'd just steal lima beans off the bushes, and we'd make a big pot of abalone lobster and lima beans wow <laughs> that's what we'd eat for... i've never had that dish before <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty good and we i would imagine <laughs> and you know there was always some wine somebody because you could buy a gallon of wine for a dollar wow gallo a gal well it wasn't even gallo i don't remember gallo wasn't around at that time <laughs> well maybe it was but guys would come for whatever see we didn't have any junior colleges or colleges there's no orange coast so Chafee won the Little Rose Bowl. They won the championship of junior uh, colleges. And so they started coming to Laguna Easter week. And we got to know the Chafee guys. And San Bernardino would come down too. But they were always fighting with Chafee. But Laguna, we were the, the middle guys. And everybody wanted to know us because we had... Laguna was hard to figure out where the houses were. You know, the streets are all yeah. going different directions. So they wanted to know, where's the party going to be? So we were always the lifeguards. Or before I was a lifeguard, you'd hang out at the lifeguard station. So Hevs and Peanuts would be lifeguards. And I'd be, as a 10-year-old or 12-year-old, be sitting on the lifeguard because there were no rules they didn't get paid as lifeguards there was a volunteer thing okay. but you only got paid on weekends on holidays in the summer okay so then then you would get paid right but there was no uh swim test or there was no uniform there was no nothing he just could sit on they the were, lifeguard yeah and they were proven because they had already volunteered for yeah, all that time do that. So, um you were drafted well, I was drafted after the, when the war. Well, that not in the, first, not in the Second World War. I was drafted in the Korean War. Okay. <clears throat> so uh, during the uh, Second World War, Hevs and Peanuts, those guys all got drafted or joined. The, they all wanted to join the Merchant Marine because they didn't. Nobody wanted to go in the army. They wanted to be on the water. So joining the Merchant Marine was being in the service. And so I just missed it. I was, if the war had lasted another year, then I would have been drafted, but okay. I, I wasn't. So then the Korean War started in 1950, uh, and I was drafted in that. But in, in those days, if you're going to college, and every 
year, at the end of the year, you took a test. And if you could pass it, then you could go another year to college. If you didn't pass the test, then the, uh, they would they'd draft you. So I fortunately passed the test. And then I went to graduate school because I, well, I was having fun in college. It was a whole new experience. So I went six years, but they would only let you go six years. And at the end of six years, you go in the service. You know, whether you pass the TED didn't make a difference. No more tests. Gotcha. So what, what happened in my case, uh, I went to, because I'm a college graduate, I went to Navy OCS. They shipped me to Newport, Rhode Island after I graduated. And um, I was going to be a Navy officer, candidate school, go to and be an ensign. But I got in a car wreck and broke my back. And I was only in the Navy like a week. And the Navy discharged me. Wow. So as soon as I was discharged, after I got healthy, I don't know, about six weeks later, then the Army drafted me. So I wasn't healthy enough to go and stay in the Navy, but the Army's qualifications were lower. So they took me with a broken back and bad Holy ribs God. and everything else. So I went to Fort Ord. But there again, because you're a college graduate, they kind of got you into schools uh, that were a little more difficult than being a foot soldier. Okay. So then I went to Fort Sill and Fort Benning, Georgia, and, and did more higher educational skills, schools that I went to. But my back, I'd broken all my ribs, my back and my pelvis. And, you know, we started going on hikes. He got a big old pack, and, and it was really killing me. And so I started complaining, and they looked at my records and took more x-rays, and so they gave me a medical discharge after a while. But I wanted to stay in. In those days, if you stayed in any service six months, you got the GI Bill. So I didn't complain about my back very much until after six months, and then I was discharged shortly after that. Gotcha. So then I joined the Merchant Marine because I wanted to do something anyway. So that's a whole other story. But you ended up doing grad school in Hawaii shortly thereafter. I went to graduate school at the University of Hawaii, and I went to Mexico City graduate school the University of Mexico. Wow. What were you studying, by the way? I I didn't study. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what did your you know, it really you is. I look at these kids now, and they're getting all these A's and tech guys, and they know so much, and they've got a major. I, I, you know, it, it's so different, and I can't even describe it well enough. In those days, I mean, there was no pill. The culture that we've already talked about was totally different. I mean, having sex, get laid with a girl was like that wasn't happening girls were scared to death of getting pregnant and even and some of them did and and tijuana where everybody went in laguna that got pregnant they even called it laguna sickness so you'd go to a regular doctor in tijuana not a a bad guy but in the dark alley it was a regular doctor's office and they had a sign in laguna sickness and that meant the girl was pregnant the guy had to sign in and go with her because bring her home again and that's what you did but the girls were scared to death and the parents and there was so sex thing was just out of the question i mean now <laughs> it's from what i hear in high school it's totally different than completely what, different yeah yeah commonplace yeah commonplace well it was not a far cry from commonplace in those days and so we would all been arrested now i mean the way we 
tr- we acted and treated because we all wanted to have the guys did and the girls did too but they were so scared sure. and the way it was we would go down we'd say hey we're going to go down and the grunion are running tonight and that was a great excuse to get the chicks down at the beach and you know you'd get them drinking some wine and stuff and you'd be necking on the beach and the sand and stuff and the girls it they wanted to experiment and try like the guys did. I mean, this is in high school and first couple of years of college because there was no, they, you know, they were getting mature. Their hormones are gone and, yeah. and it was just a way of life. The fact that it was so taboo, that there wasn't um, birth control in place or any of that makes it, increases the drive. Yeah, like the fact that it's taboo and we can't do we it. Can't, we, now I need we need to, to try know what this, this is about. And you know? early on, there was no uh, prophylactics. There's right. no rubbers. We exactly. didn't have any of that stuff. Yeah, you know. And so that's just the way it was. It was, but the lifestyle. And this is what I say to people: if you live long enough, like I have, you will see such a great okay. change in what you grew up at and yeah. how. It, is in the future never has that been more true than i think the exact years that you've been around because you've seen the advent of the internet you know like this industrial and like the industrial revolution revolution was one thing this tech revolution oh another entirely different and just in the last couple of decades i mean you saw just in regard to surfing you saw it invented virtually you know and then the foam manufacturing in the 50s revolutionized it even further and to the point that we're at now with the wsl and everything's available to stream on your phone instantly is really so far from what you're talking about yeah i've seen all those changes and being in the industry my whole life you know i was the first employee at clark foam i was the first yeah what was your job (laughs) for mixing foam well you know how it all started hobie really invented it yeah and so Hobie and I were uh, great friends, and Grubby. See, Grubby grew up in Whittier, and he went to Pomona College. And so he came down in the summertime, and that was in the late 50s. So Grubby started working for Hobie. Um, and Hobie, well, well I've got to start with Hobie. Hobie started making boards in his dad's garage in Laguna. See, Hobie grew up in Ontario. He went to Chafee High School. And I'm five years older than Hobie. Um, and I went to Chafee College, and Hobie and was in Chafee High School. And the schools were, uh, they used the same gym, the same athletic field, but you had different classrooms. So the high school and the college were in the same place. So when I was a freshman in college, Hobie was a freshman in high school. And I didn't know him, but a friend that I got to meet in my first few days of, of college was a guy named Phil Rifle. And we got to be great friends and played football together and ran track. And, and his younger brother was named Stanley Rifle. And Stanley lived right next door to Hobie. And Stanley and Hobie were bosom buddies, and they were in woodshop together and competing. They had little, who can make the best stuff in woodshop? And it was Hobie versus Stanley. And to this day, I still see Stanley once a year. He lives in Montana, and uh, Phil's dead. Of course, Hobie is. But that's where I met Hobie. Hobie was growing up there, and his dad then bought a house in Laguna as a summer home. His Hobie's dad was well off in those times and bought a house on Oak Street, and it happened to be where we were surfing at Oak Street and Brook Street. By then, we had balsa boards, and we had fins on them. Up until then, you couldn't surf at Oak Street and Brook Street on a 
hundred pound redwood with no fin. Yep. So all of that evolved from the time I was with Peanuts and Hevs as a teenager, because uh, the balsa boards really came into being. See, they made they used balsa. You know the evolution out here, but balsa was used between the redwood and made the boards a little lighter. All this was the evolution of the the surfboard itself, and it was always trying to make it lighter. They tried to hollow them out, but they didn't have marine varnish. They didn't have fiberglass. They didn't have resin. Didn't have any of that stuff. So fiberglass was invented by the English in the Second World War for a plane called the Mosquito Bomber. And so they invented fiberglass. Up until then, the balsa wood, you didn't have a solid balsa board because it would soak up water and get turn black and rot. So you'd use balsa wood in between the redwood that would protect it, and then we'd have shellac over that that gave it a little protection. So then the war comes along, the English invent that, and burrhead and hammerhead, and I don't know if you've seen the boards out here, but they're all out here because I've saved them from all my friends. Burrhead and hammerhead were two Laguna guys, same age more or less of Hevs and Peanuts, and they went in the Second uh, World War, and they became, the two of them became aeronautical, they weren't engineers, but they worked at Douglas Aircraft in Long Beach. And because England invented resin and fiberglass for the Mosquito Bomber, see, they built a bomber out of balsa wood, trying to make it lighter so it could carry a bigger bomb load. But balsa wood didn't have any rigidity. So they invented fiberglass to give the airplane struts more rigidity and strength to carry the bigger bomb load. So at the end of the war, uh, Douglas Aircraft got scraps of resin and fiberglass from England to experiment with it. So Burrhead and Hammerhead were two lifeguards, and the guys grew up in Laguna surfing at San Onofre on redwood boards. So the two boards, the first boards that ever had fiberglass on them are here in the museum. And so they put it just, they didn't have enough to put it on the whole board. They put it on the tail block and the nose block where they always got the dings. So all of a sudden, fiberglass changed the whole thing. So then you get rid of the heavy uh, redwood, and it's an all balsa board. Now you can attach a fin, which you couldn't do before. You'd put seven layers of cloth on the fin to get it to really hold when it washed up on the beach because there's no leashes then. It wouldn't break the fin off. They tried fins before, but they'd screw them in or nail them in. As soon as they hit the sand, they'd break them right off. So all of a sudden, in 46 and 7, fiberglass was available. We cover the whole board, all, now all out of balsa wood and fiberglass. The weight dropped by 100%. went from 100 pounds to 40 pounds or 50 pounds, depending on how big the board was. So that changed everything. So right after the war, 47, 48, 49, all of a sudden surfing, well, first off, the guys come back from the service, so now they've they've got some money saved up. They got the GI Bill. They're going to school. The economy is booming. Everybody's working, and now it became a recreation. Before it was kind of a way of life of diving and fishing and surfing, and all of it was kind of together. Surfing wasn't really a sport. It was just a way of recreating around the diving and the fishing but now it was a sport and guys could afford a surfboard i mean they were only like sixty dollars and a new one uh and so that changed everything so when hobie's dad 
bought the house in 1950, I think it was, at Oak Street, we were already surfing on balsa boards with fins, and, and surfing had changed. Now you could surf at Brook Street and Oak Street and Thalia Street and, and many other beaches up and down the coast. That You had to have a fin. You had to turn when you yeah. take off. You know, It wasn't just like before we were basically riding the white water. Sure. You'd try and get in the curl, but you couldn't hold it there. Yeah. So big changes, and so that's when Hobie first came, and Hobie in his garage, he saw what we were doing in his living room, looked down, he came down the beach and said, God, this is neat, uh, how can I, I want a board, and he said, well, you got to make them, <laughs> there's nobody making them, so I think it was Walter Hoffman uh, showed Hobie how to make a board, and so Hobie went in his garage, and because of his woodworking talents that he had in high school with Stanley, then all this came together, and he made himself board, which I have the first board that he made here, uh, and it's been cut up, but it still is the first one. And uh, Hobie didn't like that. He wrote it for a summer, and it didn't work for him as well. So he made another one, and that's when he started. So ultimately, he made about 90 boards in his dad's garage. He never numbered them. And he just made them for us local kids in the summertime, and he went back to high school. He was still in high school. Crazy. So that's – and then <clears> – <throat> But it, by so Hobie started doing that in the summers of fifty one, uh, fifty two. In that those summers when he was still in school, and then when he got out of high school, there was enough demand that he was making them all the time. And his dad went down to Dana Point and built that two car garage. It was just twenty by twenty with a garage door that lifted up, and because we were making too much dust and dirt in his garage and that's when Hobie went down there but what started I'm all working up to the fact that Hobie saw right away in the early mid 50s that there wasn't enough balsa wood you know it's only grown in Ecuador and so originally we would go up and only buy a few sticks at a time and we'd go up with an ice pick you'd always take we'd go had to go to LA the lumberyard there's only one place uh almost said it then uh, the name of it, I can't think of it right now. Anyway, that be a bale of balsa wood, and we'd stick the ice pick in the ends trying to find the softest wood. And then you'd pull those out, and you'd buy like two or three pieces. They were four by fours usually. Mm -hmm. We'd buy those and go home. Well, then Hobie started buying a whole bale when there became enough demand, but they couldn't get it quick enough and fast enough. And then the balsa wood, and then by then Velzi's making boards, so there was competition for the balsa wood. And uh, it was not as good quality because there was a limited supply and they couldn't get it very fast. So Hobie right away realized that he had to find another material to make a surfboard out of and styrofoam was available and they played with that but it was big cells and it tore it was real soft and you couldn't use a tool on it and so it would kind of tear so you you made them but they were square railed and then a fiberglass would dissolve styrofoam so then you had to shellac it, and there was all these steps that we had to go through, and that didn't work. So then it was always about how to make the cell structure smaller and harder, and so polyurethane, polyethylene foam started to come around, but they couldn't make it in big enough blocks, a 10-foot long piece, and it would... Uh, and this is what we didn't know. Hobie built a mold. He built two of them out of cement and steel, and they were so heavy, we had to have uh, a, a 
a pulley and a chain uh, to open the lid to the thing. And then we didn't know that the temperature and the humidity of any given day was different during the day. And so when we'd pour the foam in there, it wouldn't go off on all parts of it. And so you'd pull this blank out, but the foam cost money. We couldn't afford to throw it away. So we would use a putty they had that only came in one color, and you'd, it was like this board would come out and think of a waffle that didn't make it at completely to the edges, and that's the way the foam was. So we'd take this pink uh, putty and fill in where the foam Avoid. became real soft, and we'd fill that in so we could use the blank, and that's why the first foam boards we called Easter egg boards. They only came in three colors, white, we have them, all three of them out here, light blue, white, and a kind of a pink or light red color. And because there was these blotches in them, had to cover it, you couldn't sell them, it didn't cover it up, but it worked, and it, it got better. And so Hobie, um, by then Hobie had gotten married. He, he actually, Sharon, uh, grew up in Laguna and went to high school there, and she got pregnant, and uh, so Hobie married her. And uh, little Hobie was the no, Paula. Paula was the first, then little Hobie, and then Jeff Alter. And um, so Hobie uh, had a full-time job then. The rest of us were going to school. See, Hobie didn't ever go to college. He went to a couple months at Chafee, and then he uh, got married and, and had to go to work making surfboards. And there was enough demand then that he thought he could make a living. So he rented a house right across from my dad's house on Pearl Street in Laguna. And I didn't live there anymore, but my my dad remarried. My folks got divorced and all that during the war. And so um, my dad remarried, and he had two daughters or half-sisters of mine. And they were would babysit Hobie's kids because they lived directly across the street. And my in Laguna is kind of hilly, as you know. The my dad's house was on the high side of the hill, so in our living room we could look across the street and look right into Hobie's living room. And he had a, a chemistry set that he bought, and so I'd go over to my dad's house occasionally for dinner, and, and with my young sisters were babysitting Hobie's kids, and uh, I could look right in the deal, and he would be with a chemistry set playing at night after he'd come home from making balsa boards. He was trying to build the right kind of foam and so he bought a case of quart ice cream uh, containers uh, cardboard containers and so he'd mix up different batches of foam and then he'd write on the outside the date and the batches the stuff that he put in it and then in the morning he would take it down to the Hobie shop which was just a two-car garage then 20 by 20 had a flat roof and he had put these up on top of the roof and then every day he would go up with a clipboard and see the different foam, how it was turning brown or it wasn't, how hard it was, how soft it was. So he had a clipboard and you'd go up on the roof and there was these cans. They looked like little mushrooms. Yep. Each one would be where the foam came Expanded. up above the, the, the bucket. And so that's the way he perfected the phone. And taking into account the temperature and the humidity. Each well, he day, didn't probably. know that then. Oh, okay. See that, and but he was just doing it in a cup, and trying to see how it would react in the sun. Gotcha. And so it, then he built a mold after he did that, and then we tried it in a bigger, and that's where we couldn't figure out why 
the ends or even in the middle sometimes. So I was the first mixer. So what we did, this is so lame, but this is how the evolution was. Uh, I don't know if you had wood shop, but we used to have wood shop and you had a drill press. And it was just a, a, a thing with a platform yep. uh, and it and had a handle here and the drill bit would come down and drill the hole in whatever you're doing. So we put an egg beater instead of a drill bit oh, I see. In, the dr- in the drill press and I'd take a bucket, we'd pour the stuff in a regular old bucket and I'd have my left arm around that, lay it on this platform on the drill press, bring the, the egg beater down with a drill bit, put it in here and mix that up. Well, it really didn't mix it all up as well as you should. Because it's only spinning in, in one the, spot. spot. It's not it's going kinda, around the bucket. Yeah, you'd kind of move it around a little bit, okay. but not enough, and stuff would be on the edges that didn't get right. mixed. And so then I would go out and quickly, because it's going off, I had to go out and pour it in the mold. And by the time I'd pour it in one end and get back to the other end, you know, some of it had gone off, and then sometimes it wouldn't go off, depending on what the components in the mixture was. Then we'd lower this thing that weighed like 500 pounds uh with lid uh uh-huh and would lock it down and then the foam would start squirting out sometimes sometimes it wouldn't so the idea for listeners who aren't aware it's a liquid mixture that you're putting into but it's has a reaction time so you're pouring it into the mold and you want to close the mold and let it expand into a hard Uh, the harder the better into a hard foam basically because the cell structure in the styrofoam was as big as a small marble the the circles were the little but in the in the polyurine polyethylene foam it's minute and it's much harder so then you could use a tool on it i'm talking about a hand plane or a draw knife that's how balsa boards were made but we didn't have electric machinery by then so all of that was kind of the evolution too you know if you could figure out the chemistry and get it to expand into this mold that you would have this tighter cell structure right. that you could then shape into a surfboard. So that's how that all kind of started. But this went on for, you know, over a year or so. Hobie's of just R&D. Still trying to build balsa boards during the daytime and at weekends or after work, try, in the wintertime, slowed way down. Okay. So he had more time to do that and so no then grubby worked in the summertime but then he graduated from pomona college and he had an engineering degree okay. so right away all of a sudden he had some brain power and mathematics and so he and hobie uh i was just patching surfboards for hobie okay i was tending bar I, he always had to work sure so i tended bar at night so I could surf in the daytime, and then on a windy days, I'd go to the Hobie shop, and because we're good friends, and I'd patch surfboards. So I was in and out of there, just get paid, you know, a couple bucks for doing a patch job. Uh, but I didn't work there all day, every day. But in the summertime, Grubby did, and uh, Rennie Yater was also an early employee. Um, Rennie, same thing, grew up in Pasadena. His dad also had a summer home in Laguna. So Rennie came down, and Rennie was more Hobie's age. He's five years, five or six years younger than I am. So Hobie hired him as a glasser. Rennie wanted to be a shaper, but Hobie was doing all the shaping. So uh, eventually, Velzy stole Yater away from Hobie because uh, Velzy said, so you can come shape for me. That's what Rennie wanted to do. So we've all been friends since we were high school age. And, it, you know, friends our whole lives. Yeah. And that's how it all kind of happened. So... Um, 
Grubby was working there, and then my dad uh, ended up buying a liquor store in Huntington Beach. And by then, I'd had six years of college, and I didn't, you know, I didn't go to college to learn anything. I just wanted to get laid. I wanted to go to parties, and I wanted to surf. And so I went to Santa Barbara and graduated there. Surfed Rincon by myself or one other guy. There was only three surfboards in all of Santa Barbara, and we would call each other up and bring your friend because there's always a guy that wants to learn, but he didn't have a surfboard. So we'd go down and build a fire, and three of us maybe go out, maybe it'd be be by yourself but Billy Ming another guy you might have read about uh, he and I lived together at Santa Barbara and he and I bought a surfboard our first new surfboard I had used ones that I got along the way but I got $30 for Christmas when I was in college and uh, and Ming Billy Ming had some 20 bucks or something and he knew Velzy Velzy didn't have a shop but he was making boards under the Manhattan Pier and so and you'd catch him there, and he just had some sawhorse and balsa boards like Hobie was doing. But Velzy was making them really before Hobie was. See, Hobie really didn't start until 51. Velzy was making them in 49 or so. So I didn't. I knew Hobie then, but Hobie wasn't doing it commercially. So I was in Santa Barbara, and to go to Santa Barbara, you had to go through Hermosa Beach and Manhattan and Malibu. That's the way you got to Santa Barbara. So you'd stop and see these guys because there are so few guys. These yeah. are these tribes. So you had 25 guys at Malibu. You had another 10 or 15 at uh, South Bay, Hermosa, Manhattan. You had 10 or 15 in Laguna. Uh, you had another 20 in Wind and Sea. And those were the tribes. There, there weren't any other ones. Right. And so... Uh, Ming and I bought a new surfboard together. We put my 30 bucks, and I think it cost $50. So Ming must have had 20 And we had Velzy make it under the pier in Manhattan. And Dick Barr, the glasser who got shot, and that's a whole other story, if you know that uh, big uh, story. But anyway, he glassed it. And uh, we took it to Santa Barbara. And so Ming and I shared that board for a couple of years in Santa Barbara. And we'd go together uh, and we'd flip to see who's going to build the fire and who's going to surf it first. And I got pictures of us at Rincod, you know, just one of us out eight foot glassy day nobody there and then because we got i got to know velzy ming already knew him we started we had a phone thing going and because we couldn't afford long distance was a expense and it was like 10 cents or 20 cents i don't know what it was but it's too much so we had a thing going on the phone where we called it uh mr b swell so if you called person to person you had to get the operator online say i want a person to person call uh to dell velzy and it's collect by the way uh and who's calling this is mr b swell uh, and so he would the operator would phone velzy and say i got a collect call from mr b swell in santa barbara and velzy would say well i don't know if i'll accept it or not and uh, i'd say on the because i talk i could hear him the operator's there i'd say operator will tell him i'll call back at 815 it was eight foot and the 15 increments meant how the quality of the waves were oh, okay. so if it was 845 it was kind of windy probably going to blow out and so that's when we never so we never had to accept the call never accepted the phone call you were just communicate that is amazing <laughs> but you know you you work things out then that's the way you did stuff you so. you had to sneak around and do stuff cheap because we didn't have the money yeah and that's just the way it was that is amazing 
We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, Dick is going to tell us about how and why he and Hobie Alter went into business, the impetus for his three-year odyssey around the world that would inspire the endless summer, and about the early boards that he started collecting, which would eventually become the collection that launched the Surfing Heritage and Culture Center. We'll be back in about a minute. We're introducing a brand new sponsor this month with the holidays in mind, posterburner.com slash surf. Posterburner makes the process of printing photos easy and inexpensive, and I'm sure that you've had images that you've been intending to print for a long time, but just never got around to figuring out the best way to do it. Posterburner allows you to upload your images and then turn them into anything from posters to canvases, Christmas ornaments, phone cases, puzzles, water bottles, coffee mugs, pillowcases, license plates, shirts, dog tags, all sorts of stuff that's great for gifting. The printing is high quality. They have old-fashioned, conversational customer service. They print fast, they ship fast, and they offer a money-back guarantee if you're not happy with your product. So posterburner.com slash surf gives you 10% off your entire order, and it supports this show. Posterburner.com slash surf. Thanks. I started Hobie Sports. So Hobie was making surfboards, but Hobie, Hobie was a, a Thomas Edison. He was an inventor, a creator. He wasn't a business guy. I mean, he was plenty smart enough to do anything he wanted to, but he, his joy was making stuff. He liked to be in a shop, and he, every house he had, he had a shop, and he wanted to futz around there. I've been with Hobie for 50 years. We'd go on boat trips. We'd go do stuff, and he'd want a new shackle or a new piece of something, and we'd go to a hardware store, and he'd say, ah, this is crummy stuff. I can make one better than that, and he'd go home and make it, and it would be better. So when Hobie did the surfboards, he got impatient with that because he gave the foam we were talking about earlier to, to Grubby. He really gave it to him. And Hobie said, call it Clark foam, Clark whatever you want. And so Grubby went off and, and of course, made a great living and did all of that. And Hobie then got interested in sailing, made the Hobie cats, uh, made Hobie glasses, uh, Hobie hawk, uh, radio-controlled glider that set world records. So he was an inventor all along. He made these products, and he would get kind of bored with them when they became about 95% complete. And I couldn't create anything. I'm hopeless in that area. But I was organized. I knew how to do a financial statement. And I figured all this stuff out. And I'd gone to just enough school that I could put some of my schoolwork kind of came back to me at one point. And um, so I took over the surfboard shops. And that was a separate entity. So there was Hobie Surfboards. And so Hobie... Uh, he kind of tricked me into going to Hawaii one time. I'd, I'd gone there in the early 50s. We, well, Hobie wasn't even out of high school and surfed there in the wintertime and lived with Buzzy, Bent, Buzzy Trent and Walder and Flippy, and we all lived in a, a Quonset hut in Makaha. Well, they were in the military. I'd already gotten out of the service, and I was over there going to graduate school, but I didn't finish. And when the surf would come up, we'd go surfing, and so I just lived in this Quonset hut. Anyway, I'd been there for a couple of years, came back, and uh, so when I 
um, well, then I, you know, get everything in order. So I, I was at the liquor store at Huntington Beach. I ran that for four years, surfed at Huntington every day. The liquor store went broke because I was such a flake. And uh, I went to graduate school in Mexico, graduate school back in Hawaii. And <clears throat> so then when I went to this liquor store, I was getting frustrated because it was going broke. And I didn't, was so stupid, I didn't realize it because I was going with my girlfriend to bullfights in Tijuana on the weekends and getting drunk and going to parties. And we got robbed and stuck up and the store was just going down the tubes. And so finally it uh, I realized that, and so I fired everybody, worked in the store, lived in the store, put a cot in the back of the store, and I worked from 6 in the morning to 11 at night, ate three meals a day out of the delicatessen counter, baloney sandwiches, even had my girlfriend move in the back of the liquor store with me, and I quit surfing for that whole year, and I said, i got to sell this store, and my dad owned it, I didn't really own it, but he gave me the responsibility for it so i finally disneyland was just being built and in those days each county had so many liquor licenses and so disneyland had to have a liquor license and i said i got one that's for sale so disneyland bought the liquor license at huntington beach from me for enough money to pay off the bank loan on the building and the uh the liquor license, wow. pay all, and I had stiffed a bunch of the suppliers, paid all the suppliers off, and I ended up with $2,200. I hadn't paid myself any because all I was doing was eating bologna sandwiches for a year, and I didn't need any money because that's all I was doing. So I had up with $2,200, and during that time, I had been, you know, magazines were a big deal then. True and Argosy, you might be heard about them, but they were men's magazines that were adventure stories in them. They, they were a, kind of the forerunner of a playboy. They didn't have a lot of naked girls in them, maybe a topless girl in it occasionally, but it was about living in Tahiti or the... Asia, you know, guy going off on hikes and doing stuff in the mountains and rivers. And I'm reading these things and I think, God, I got to go to some of these places. And so that's how I started, made my first trip. So I left in 1950. I sold the store, got $2,200. I started hitchhiking in Laguna uh, and went around the world. We'll talk about that later. Th that was a three year odyssey. So I came back after three years and showed my pictures to Hobie and Bruce Brown and Grubby and all my pals, swore I had surfed in Tahiti and Australia and all over the world, certainly South Africa. And um, so I tried to encourage Bruce to go, and I was there long enough. He wanted to go and see these people. Uh, he, he didn't know anybody, and so I knew people. I stayed in Cape Town for seven months. You know, I was in Australia for five months. So I lived with guys and knew where to go. And, and so I hooked Bruce up with people in each of the places that he went with. So I phoned him and I'd maintain contact with him because I'd made him promises. that When I was there, they didn't know how to make surfboards. I showed him how to get materials or sent him materials myself. In Cape Town, I even flew back. I sent John a container of resin and blanks and uh, fiberglass and then I flew down and showed him how to make it work wow. so there was, and this is a, a lot of stories oh, yeah. to yeah. tell all that so anyway 
when I got back, and Hobie said, well, what are you going to do now you're home? And I said, oh, I'm going to go 10 bar at night and go surf in the daytime, and I'll patch boards for you some more. He said, well, you can't make any money doing that. It was never about money. It was always a lifestyle that we wanted. And so... I said, well, you've been to Hawaii a bunch of times. You know Rabbit and all those guys over there. i got to go over on a business trip. Why don't you come with me? So I said, sure, let's go. In that time, we went on a... You couldn't fly from L.A. to Honolulu. It was too far. You had to fly from L.A. to San Francisco because it's closer from San Francisco to Honolulu than it is from L.A. Wow. So you couldn't... couldn't or, and just barely made that. Amazing. And walking on... It was a DC-4, I think. And... We would. Hobie didn't even take a surfboard because he was going to their business. But I was taking my board, balsa board, and I got under my arm. You walked up the the stairs to the airplane with a surfboard under your arm and laid it in the aisle of the oh of the airplane. Gosh. And every time the stewardess would come by, or the guy would get up to take a leak or something, he'd hit the fin and knock it over. And he said, "Oh, excuse me, I didn't mean to do that." I mean, it was unbelievable putting it right in the aisle because it would take up four rows of seats of uh, you know it was a 10-6 or 10-4 I forget what I was riding then but it was always 10 something then for Hawaii yeah. and so it was amazing but anyway I went to Hawaii and that's when Hobie said after he'd been there a week George Downing was his agent and he uh, George was a sharp guy and so the the deal was he was supposed to he was renting surfboards at Waikiki in a little rental sh- uh, kiosk and so George instead of he had a, a Hobie blank and he was supposed to take an order for a guy that wanted a new surfboard and George would get 10 bucks for it and send it to Hobie well if he if he made it himself then he'd make about 25 bucks so about one in 10 orders that he took he'd send to Hobie and the other nine he'd make himself and sell them the board but you know he could make them fast enough and and there was demand then because that's when this time period the economy was good people had jobs made money and they wanted to recreate and that's when it was all starting so <clears throat> Hobie was upset about that because he knew he was not getting all the orders he should so he for, fired Downing and uh, and I knew George and Rabbit from the times I'd lived there before so Hobie said I want you to stay here and open a store. I said, I think this will be great. And I said, Hobie, I don't have any money. And he said, you don't need any. I've already rented a building on Kapiolani Boulevard. We'll go down there the next few days. I'll help you fix it up. And I will send you surfboards. You don't have to pay me until you sell them. So we went down there. I painted the walls. Hobie built a little counter. I've got pictures of all that. Built a sign that said Hobie Surfboards on it. Planted it out in the front. And I took a picture of him under the sign that he just built. And he left. He said, you got to take me to the airport. So I took him to the airport, flew off. He said, I'll send you boards tomorrow. He air freighted me 17 surfboards the next day. And they cost $10 air freight to ship them to Hawaii. And in the meantime, I'd put a sign on the window, Hobie store, surfboards opening. There was no surf shops. This was the first ever surfboard shop. Uh, up until then Hobie and Velzi were making them in a garage you went where they made the board and paid him and bought it right there there was no inventory you had to order the board and it took a month or six weeks to get a board here all of a sudden was a clean open store with 17 new surfboards in it different sizes colors you could walk in pay 
and walk out with a surfboard. That was unheard of. First one ever. And so Hobie sent me the 17 boards. They unloaded them in individual boxes in front of the store. And all these Japanese and Chinese and Hawaiian kids are hanging around. We opened them. And I didn't know. I didn't even get them open. We'd I'd open the end of the box, shake it out. It was wrapped in plastic, slide out, and there was a work order taped on the deck of the board. And there was, you know, who shaped it, who glassed it, who glossed it, uh, Ralph Parker shaping, Danny Bronner glassing, whoever. And then there was a number on it, 85 bucks. I didn't know if that was what I was paying or what the retail was. And these kids see $85 on it. They're stuffing money in my shirt pocket. I sold all 17 boards and never got them in the store. Oh, my God. All 17 sold out in the grass. Wow. And so... I, right away, I called Hobie the next day. And in those days, you could phone, but there was a big echo. You couldn't, it's static, you couldn't hear. I said, Hobie, Hobie, you got to send me some more boards. And I don't know if he could hear me there, y'all. And so he was making boards that he'd sell to sporting goods stores. That was who the dealers were. So, um, you know, like Sports LTD or uh, Chateau Sports or whomever would order like five surfboards. So Hobie would steal boards from their orders gotcha. one out of here two out of there and send them to me right away because i he would get more money and i could made the whole thing work so he well, sent well, me more was the 85 dollars your wholesale cost well then right away hobie figured out i said i don't know how much they are i said what am i supposed to do he said you're you're gonna make ten dollars a board for selling it and I got to pay the rent on the store and that's my wages out of 10 bucks a board and so Hobie said holy shit he said we got to we got to raise the retail price so everybody then and it was only Velzy and a couple other in every town there was a guy making a surfboard in those days but they were making them in their dad's garage there wasn't a shop right. and Hobie was the only one that was really kind of a factory little building and Velzy finally rented a shop in, in uh, Manhattan Manhattan. Um, so nobody was making a margin. They were doing the work and they were making 20 bucks or 25 bucks. So uh, Hobie said, we, I got to raise the price. So once he raised the price, everybody else raised the price. So then there was room to start having dealers because there was no wholesale price up until then. It was just one price. So that changed everything. So then the boards were, most of the boards that I was selling, and there were 250 extra for a stringer. A tail block was 250 uh, Colored panels was $2 on each panel or whatever. And so most of the boards were like 100 to $110. Okay. Most of them around 100 105 right in there. And so Hobie kept sending me boards. I would sell them. I mean, I sold thousands of surfboards. Waikiki was my whole deal. And I was an Outrigger Canoe Club member. Outrigger Canoe Club ordered 200 boards from me. In one order? In one order. That's insane. For rental boards. In those days, and shit, I'm adding up $10. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's big money for Huge. me. So it was and unbelievable. Also also, great experience for you developing like your accounting practices yeah. and all that back end stuff. Yeah, all of that. I'm learning yeah. all that. And there's a million things I could tell you. Uh, Jerry Lopez worked for me. Randy Rarick worked for me. Jack Shipley worked for me. They were all going to high school and they'd hang out and I'd have them patching boards and 
helping me. I had to go to the bank, kind of run errands, do stuff. So they all started working for me. So I've known all these guys that are now the tried and true guys, you know, were all kids working for me when they were 15, 16 years old. Wow. <clears throat> and, you know, I can tell you how Lightning Bolt started because that was the Hobie shop. I sold it to Lopez and Jack Shipley eventually. So those are all other stories. But to get back to your question, so I lived in Hawaii for 20 years, ran all the Hobie shops, and all these things are changing. Hobie called me, said, you got to come over and run the Dana Point store because nobody knows how to run it. By then, he'd moved out of the where he was making surfboards down to Capo Beach, where the, really he built a factory. And uh, he had Corky Carroll running. Corky Carroll had a food bar in it, and he was selling water beds on the sides. And so you know, the whole thing was going sideways. And nobody said, Well, you figured out how to run the retail store, so you got to come over and run this. So then I opened stores in um, Corona del Mar and Santa Monica and Santa Cruz and San Diego and I had 22 stores at one time but during all that time getting back to the question is guys are bringing redwoods in guys would come to the Dana Point store and get a new board and they'd ha have an old redwood in the back of their pickup and I'd say are you going to the dump and yeah yeah my my wife is tired of looking at that redwood I'm taking it to the dump I said well, I'll save you a trip leave it here so I started collecting. These are all guys I knew. They're all friends of mine. I, I said, well, leave it here. I'll put it up in the rafters. And so I've got Burrhead's board and Hammerhead's board and all these guys that are the, really the crux of this museum. I had them in the Hobie stores. And in Hawaii, the same way. Rabbit Kekai and, and the whole Hobie surf team, Joey Cabell and George Downey. And he, he and I got to be great friends later on after our little because uh, I was competing with him for a sure. while. Yeah. So Buffalo and Greg Knoll and all the guys that started coming over to Hawaii wanted to do what we were doing because we were ahead of all those guys. See, I was 10 years older than Greg and Dewey and Bing and all those guys. They're all good friends, but they started after we did. And when I say we, meaning Hobie and I. So in Hawaii, I got all these boards. See, there's seven known Duke Kanemoko boards that Duke either rode or made himself. And one, he uh, he left in Australia when he made it over there. It's in a museum there. One we put to in the Smithsonian Institute. One is in Waikiki. And I have here in this museum the other four. So those are the, you know, these are the prime historic boards in the world. And so I collected those early on. I mean, I used to surf with Duke all the time. He died in 68. I, you know, I know him for 20 years. And he was a beach boy. He wasn't like a big hero, so to speak. We'd sit on the beach. I could have taken a million pictures with him and had him sign his name a million times. But you're just with him every day. You don't yeah. think about that. Right. So that's how I ended up getting four of his surfboards, just because I, I thought to myself, these are great historical objects. I was always interested in history and geography and going around the world. And I was gone for three years, and I went back a bunch of times. You know, all of that I read to this day. I'm reading a book right now about Africa you know I just got into that and so I saved all these boards in these different Hobie shops and a lot of them had high ceilings and so the clothes that we added on and the surfboards were all on the floor and up about eight feet 
the big walls above that with high ceilings I didn't have anything to put there so I started putting these surfboards up and showcasing them and people started noticing oh god you mean they used to surf on these old boards and they just were a part of the decor of the Hobie shops and then this is before anybody collected them so guys saying God, I think I'm going to start saving something. I have an old board. I'm going to save that. And so then there was the first auction in Costa Mesa, and I forgot what year it was, and they auctioned off a few old boards, and guys started, yeah, this is kind of neat. We'll start collecting them. And so I didn't pay anything for these guys. I gave them a T-shirt, saved them a trip to the dump, and that's why I got most of them. Fascinating story. <laughs> so that's, I had these. So then after... I was 65 by then. I had all these Hobie stores, and I, I wanted to do other things, and so I sold the Hobie stores, um, but I didn't sell the surfboards, and I kept all the surfboards because I by then they had a historical value, if not a monetary value, and so uh, but I rented them so the guys that bought the stores they couldn't call it Hobie Sports because I owned that name. But they changed the name to whatever they're going to call it. And I rented them the surfboards for 100 bucks a month. So, so then I got a rental income from the boards, but I owned them. And they, they didn't uh, have a lease on them. It was just month to month. So finally, I thought I came back and did a lot of stuff here and talking to Hobie and Bruce and all the guys. And, they, and uh, Steve Pesman uh, primarily. And he said, God, you're the perfect guy we need a real museum i went up to huntington beach i went to oceanside i went to santa cruz they all had little museums and the guys running a met well they were trying to save some of the stuff they didn't have any money in the case of huntington beach it was two women that had never surfed they didn't understand the business oceanside was a small little place and they didn't have much going there and so i didn't want to give them i was going to donate my boards to one of them but they didn't have any staying power and they could disappear tomorrow and a lot of the boards in there did disappear so that's when Pesman said you're the perfect guy you've got a few bucks you got all the surfboards uh, and you know the industry you know everybody in it so why don't you start a museum so that's what I did I started surfing heritage 22 years ago now and uh, I filed for the 5013C and got a tax-deferred business. And, um, and then I met Spencer Crowell at one of these auctions. And by now, it was about, uh, I had started this, and I didn't have a place for them. I was just still renting them. They were in the Hobie shops and different stores. Uh, Mark Christie rented them from me in Laguna and Dana Point. And uh, so then I went to a couple of these auctions. I couldn't believe guys were paying two and three thousand dollars for surfboards that I'd given a T-shirt at the best for. And so these guys were younger guys and I got they were at, at the end of the first auction it was in San Diego after the first one was Costa Mesa the next one was San Diego and um I went up to this tall guy and I said, who are you? Are you paying money for these surfboards? And he, I said, yeah. I said, what's your name? He said, Spencer Crowell. And I said, what are you going to do with them? He said, I don't know. I think they're artsy crafts. I'm going to keep them and make a collection out of them. And I said, well, you know, I've been saving them for 30 years and I got them in all the homies. Oh, no kidding. He said, do you know Phil Edwards? You know Mickey Munoz? Uh, I said, well, yeah, they're my best friends. He said, God, I'd really like to meet those guys. So I said, well, shall, let's get together. We'll have a beer and talk. 
talk about it. So that's how I met Spencer, and and he of course helped, and he uh, built this building, and then I bought it because he didn't pay for it; he just uh, built it. Uh, and let us move in here, and uh, he paid for all the interior and everything. So then I bought the building and gave it to the museum, and we own it free and clear. So we own a building. So we've got an endowment. This is going to last in perpetuity. we got, as you know, all the media and books and the archiving and all that's part of our deal. And Spencer's been a great part of it. And um, so we're going forward. Amazing. Young boy done me bad, went and did you wrong Young boy done me bad, I went and did you wrong And I got high, high Lord, I got high Now I got a bone to pick with you And I'm sure you're not true Oh, one day when you're looking back We refer to the Surfing Heritage and Culture Center as the Smithsonian of Surfing, and it really is an amazing nonprofit organization. Surfing's been a little bit slow to cultivate studious and meticulous preservationists with a passion to catalog all of this stuff, but Dick Metz is among the most dedicated. And it's really inspired me to actually make this tiny contribution by getting some of his stories down in this medium for posterity. So if you're anywhere near Southern California, the museum is open to the public. If not, shack.org is their website. It's S-H-A-C-C.org, Surfing Heritage and Culture Center. And it's where you can also become a member to support them, or you could just check out all of their resources. It's really, really cool. So images of everything that Dick and I discussed are available on surfsplendorpodcast.com. It's also where you can leave a comment for Dick. You should also check out my entire archive of the past 299 episodes of Surf Splendor entirely for free. Um, Dick will be back for the next two weeks with parts two and three. And then I'm going to close out this year with a brand new episode with one of our most popular guests ever. So I'm very excited to share that with you. Close out the year on a bang. And then also consider Visla for any of your gifting needs this Christmas. They are giving away a free five liter dry bag with any purchase of $100 or more. Just use the promo code free five. That's the number five. So free five when you check out and while supplies last on us orders, you will get a free five liter dry bag, which is a smoking deal. Um, I've actually just stocked up on a couple of flannels from Visla for the winter months and they have clothing for everybody in your family and then gifts as well like backpacks beanies hats prints by jeremiah klein swim fins and of course they also make the line of t-shirts that i was talking about at the beginning of the show that are made out of recycled cotton and plastic bottles and they're super comfy it's shocking how comfy they are um, so check it all out at your local retailer or at visla.com. Thank you for that. 
John Vandendries and Scott Jalowski are the two lucky winners of the almond soft tops that we raffled off on December 1st. They've both been contacted and have agreed to accept their gifts. John is picking his up tomorrow. Scott actually lives in Asia, and I thought that might be a problem for shipping, but it turns out he's going to be visiting family and friends in California during the holidays, so I think he can grab his then, which is convenient. So congrats to you guys. I really appreciate the support. goes a long way to keeping us in business, and um, lots more to come in 2020. Uh, expansion into visual mediums, YouTube, and... Um, some other stuff too that I'm just not going to talk about until we're ready to launch. So anyways, I'll be back tomorrow on Spit with Scott Bass, which got pushed back since Tuesday due to him installing solar panels at his house. Good on you, Scott. And then Chaz and I are scheduled for Friday morning at Album Surfboards for another episode of The Grit. And the Pipemaster's waiting period starts on December 8th. So get on that. Until then, this is David Scales for Surf Splendor, encouraging you to get back into the ocean, share some waves, and of course, shred on.